Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 203, Siberia, Opportunity, Torment, and Captivity. Last time we covered the history, weather, and geography of Siberia. Today I'm going to share the dark side of the vast lands of eastern Russia, the gulags and prisons, and the stories of the people who were sent there or who worked for the system. I'm going to begin with a passage from the book Russia, A Thousand-Year Chronicle of the Wild East by Martin Sixsmith. Quote, Siberia as a land of opportunity has always coexisted with Siberia as land of torment and captivity. From the 17th century, they developed side by side. First the Tsar, then the Soviet leaders saw it as a safe, distant dumping ground for those who threatened their power. Fyodor Dostoevsky, Lenin, Stalin, Osip Mandelstam, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn were among those who trod its frozen paths, each of them exiled for troubling the Kremlin autocrats. The early Romanovs sent convicted criminals and prisoners of war to forced service in battalions defending the frontier. Exile in Tsarist times was largely to villages and towns, where offenders would be monitored until the end of their sentence. Lenin was allowed to take his hunting rifles and half his voluminous library with him. But by the 1930s, Siberia was covered in a network of labor camps, and the majority of inmates were political prisoners. Even if a prisoner escaped, death awaited him from starvation in the forests and swamps. We begin to start seeing the forced exile of large numbers of people to Siberia under the reign of Empress Anna, her lover and person who ran Russia during the 1730s, Ernst Johann Biron, began 10 years of persecutions, executions, and the exile of an estimated 30,000 people. One particularly targeted group was the Old Believers, also known as Old Ritualists. They refer to themselves as Orthodox Christians. Many were exiled, but even more significant numbers left their homes and headed for the wilderness of Siberia. They felt it was the only way to keep their traditional beliefs and rituals. The exodus began after the reforms of Patriarch Nikon between 1652 and 1666. While some headed to Lithuania and some to other regions of Russia and beyond, many went to Siberia. To this day, there are large pockets of descendants of those people still living there. The persecution of the old believers waxed and waned over the years, depending on who was czar. Under Peter the Great, he just demanded increased taxes from them, but under Nicholas I, the persecution increased exponentially. He would send many of them to Siberia. Another group that tried to vanish in the vast lands of the east were the serfs. Those men and women frequently tried to run away from their cruel masters, but were oftentimes found and returned to those masters, often with disastrous consequences. Siberia proved an easier place to hide, but few survived its severe conditions. In 1754, under Empress Elizabeth, serfs could be exiled to Siberia and recalled at their owner's whim at any time. The serfs by now were just considered property. Catherine the Great, after the French Revolution, frightened by the potential of it happening in Russia, began to send potential revolutionaries like Alexander Radishev to Siberia. His work 
journey from Petersburg to Moscow resulted in his initially being sentenced to death. Luckily, he was sent to Siberia as part of a 10-year imprisonment. The expansion and drawing of the lines that set the boundaries of Siberia happened around 1847 to 1858. The man responsible for this was Count Nicholas Muriev, also known as Muriev Amursky because of his annexation of the Amur region. He did this because China was in the middle of the Nyan Rebellion and was at war with both Great Britain and France. The Count was able to negotiate very favorable borders, especially getting the left bank of the Amur River. This border, though, would lead to a great deal of tension during the Sino-Soviet conflict in 1969. Dostoevsky would write about his exile in Siberia in his book, Notes from the House of the Dead, which appeared in 1861. His time in Siberia changed Fyodor, as he went from being somewhat of a radical member of the Petrushevsky to a Slavophile with a deep dislike for Jews, Poles, Germans, Catholics, Socialists, and the West. Between 1891 and 1903, enormous additions were made to the massive Trans-Siberian Railway Line. Finally, there was a way to transport the vast wealth found in Siberia to the east or the west. It did come with a dark side as well. They now had a means of transporting people to the cold in his spots, inhospitable lands, and the prison camps known as gulags that were going to be built by the Bolsheviks. But before we get into that, during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, Siberian peasants, mostly due to the new rail line, were among the most prosperous of the peasant class of Russia at the time. Most political prisoners sent into exile during the last years of the Tsars, Alexander II, Alexander III, and Nicholas II, became more radicalized and worked on their writing that would spark the coming revolution of 1917. One such writer was Nicholas Chernichevsky, who was arrested in 1862 and returned from exile in 1883. His work, What is to be Done, would be one of the most important influences on Vladimir Lenin, who would author work with the same name. Lenin would also be sent to Siberia as a punishment for his political stances. He would be sent there in 1896 and spend three years in Siberia. Beginning in the 1920s, first by Lenin and then by Stalin, they started to ship prisoners to Siberia. As Martin Sixsmith puts it in his book, Bajanov was one of nearly 500 ITLs, correctional labor camps, that made up Stalin's gulag, a vast network of locations, mostly here in Siberia, but spreading to nearly all areas of the Soviet Union, where an estimated 14 million people were imprisoned between 1929 in 1953. Conditions were made deliberately harsh. The political prisoners, the Polizeks, were treated worst of all, and it's thought that one and a half million died for hunger, disease, cold, and exhaustion. The population of the camps was a valuable source of free labor for the Soviet Union as it rushed to build its industrial base. All the tremendous Siberian construction projects, the railways, canals, power stations, and gigantic blast furnaces that became the showpiece of the Soviet economy were built by prisoners. When the central planners ran short of labor, the NKVD, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, or secret police, would always supply them with more freshly arrested 
enemies of the people. Like Bajanov, the majority of the ATLs were closed after Stalin's death, but some continued to operate well into the 1980s. While researching this episode, I came upon story after story of despair, unusual punishments and torture, but the one reoccurring theme of those sent to Siberia was the extreme cold. Here is one from Gregory Pfeiffer's book, Russians, The People Behind the Power. Quote, Prisoners, or Zeki, were freezing all the time. German prisoners, unused to Soviet suffering, constituted a high percentage of those who died in Mischenko's train. During a stop, he caught sight of a former cellmate, an elderly German engineer, whom he had witnessed losing his mind during the interrogations. He couldn't speak, even to his fellow Germans, Mischenko said. Now he was shivering outside, wearing a thin jacket and no hat. It was January. He couldn't have survived. Mischenko, who, like many, had no shoes when he arrived at his camp near a town called Pechora, wrapped his feet in rags. Regarding despair felt by many, Pfeiffer writes, quote, When Anton Chekhov undertook to visit a notorious penal colony on the far eastern island of Sakhalin in 1890, he traveled more than two months from Moscow by train, horse-drawn carriage, and river streamer to reach his destination. Although he praised parts of Siberia for their beauty and relative freedom from czarist repression, what struck him most was the squalor he encountered. Poverty, ignorance, and worthlessness that might drive one to despair. He wrote about the far eastern region of Primori. He saw Sakhalin as a perfect hell. So what jobs were there for these poor souls who were exiled and imprisoned in Siberia? Anne Applebaum, in her book Gulag, A History, gives us a well-crafted answer. She writes, quote, Without a doubt, the range of economic activity within the Gulag was as wide as the range of economic activity within the USSR itself. A glance through the Guide to the System of Corrective Labor Camps in the USSR, the most comprehensive listing of camps to date, reveals the existence of camps organized around gold mines, coal mines, nickel mines, highway and railway construction, arms factories, chemical factories, metal processing plants, electricity plants, the building of airports, apartment blocks, sewage systems, the digging of peat, the cutting of trees, and the canning of fish. The Gulag administrators themselves preserved a photo album solely dedicated to the goods that inmates produced. Among other things, there are pictures of mines, missiles, and other army equipment, car parts, door locks, buttons, logs floating down rivers, wooden furniture, including chairs, cabinets, telephone boxes, and barrels, shoes, baskets, and textiles, with samples attached, rugs, leather, fur hats, sheepskin coats, glass cups, lamps, and jars, soap, candles, even toys, wooden tanks, tiny windmills, and mechanical rabbits playing drums. Imagine that the Soviet economy was dependent on these prisoners for so much of the goods that there is little wonder why its economy collapsed when it did. If labor is free, and it was with the prisoner work situation, then products are cheap. The main benefits were in raw product supply, especially lumber. Others in the gulag would just spend their days chopping down trees all day, every day. 
Some would dig out asbestos from large open pit mines with a pickaxe. Just imagine the life expectancy of those poor people. If you had a profession in your regular life, then you might get a better job than someone with no skills. As one Isaac Filshitsky wrote of his time in the Gulag, the first camp winter of 1949 to 1950 was especially difficult for me. I didn't have a profession which could be put to use in the camps, and I was forced to go from place to place doing various kinds of general work, to saw, to carry, to pull, to push, and so on, to go. In other words, wherever it came into the head of the work assigner to send me. Within the gulag, life was strictly regimented, somewhat like you might find in boot camp in the army. People were often put into brigades. Each brigade would have as few as four people to as many as 400. They would eat, sleep, and work together day after day. The person in charge was known as the brigadier, another prisoner who was trusted and had the responsibility of making sure that whatever they were assigned to do got done. Here is what one of the prisoners wrote about the relationship between the brigadier and his people. Quote, The life of a person depends very much on his brigade and his brigadier, given that you spend all your days and nights in their company, at work, in the dining hall, and in your bunks, always the same faces. The brigade members can either work all together, in groups, or individually. They can help you survive or help destroy you. Either sympathy and help, or hostility and indifference. The role of the brigadier is no less important. It also matters who he is, what he thinks his tasks and obligations are, to serve bosses at your cost and his own benefit, to treat his brigade members like underlings, servants, and lackey, or to be your comrade in ill fortune and do everything possible to make life easier for members of the brigade. The food was, I mean, the work was hard. The food was terrible. What little food they supplied. It was the day-to-day things that we all take for granted that were so very difficult in the Siberian gulags. Going to the bathroom was at times perilous. As one prisoner put it, quote, Going to the bathroom was extremely dangerous. A bout of diarrhea could land you in the snow forever. He further goes on to write about some fellow inmates who just soiled themselves instead of risking going to the bathroom. Quote, Working next to them was unpleasant, and back in the tent, when we began to warm up, the stench was unbearable. Those who soiled themselves were often beaten and thrown out. As if being in the gulag was punishment enough, it could get even worse for some. One of the worst things that could be done to a prisoner who was either perceived to have done something wrong, or those who refused to work, was the punishment block. While many of the gulags have disintegrated over time, The punishment blocks still remain. They were built of brick, sometimes the only brick buildings in the camps. They were what we would call today isolation chambers. Two types of prisoners were most likely to be put into isolation. The real hardened criminals, thieves and murderers, and those known as the monashiki, religious males. They were the men who refused to work for what they called the Soviet Satan. Not only were these punishment blocks meant to keep the prisoners alone, but they also had meager rations, sometimes just some dark rye bread, around 300 grams, along with what was called soup, 
three times a week. This soup was usually merely hot water with some mild flavor. What this flavor was is up to your imagination. Janice Bardach described his punishment cell within the block like this, quote, My underwear and undershirt were already damp and I was shivering. My neck and shoulder got stiff and cramped. The soggy raw wood was decaying, especially on the edges of the bench. The bench was so narrow it could not lie on my back, and when I lie on my side, my legs hung over the edge. I had to keep them bent all the time. It was difficult to decide which side to lie on. On one side, my face was pressed against the slimy wall. On the other, my back became damp. Here is another description from Gustav Herling. Quote, My cell was so low that I could touch the ceiling with my hand. It was impossible to sit on the upper bunk without bending one's back against the ceiling. And the lower one could only be entered with the movement of a diver, head first and left by pushing one's body away from the wood like a swimmer in a sandbank. The distance between the edge of the bunk and the bucket by the door was less than half a normal step. It's truly a wonder that more people didn't die in these conditions. What did keep them going were things like letters from their families and on those rare occasions gifts of food or clothing from them. To receive these special rewards required adherence to the rules of the gulag, but also the whims of the commandants and the guards. The greatest reward would be a visit from a spouse or parent. It was a time of high emotion when they arrived, an incredible sorrow when they left. Imagine, if you can, the dismay you would feel visiting a prisoner who was fed a diet that barely kept them alive, emaciated and aged beyond their years. Shock was common among the visitors when they saw their loved ones for the first time. Even worse, there were times when they were not even allowed to touch each other. That could have been the greatest torture of all. There are exceptions to that rule, but it always wasn't always a positive thing. Here's another recollection from Gustav Herling, as reported by Anne Applebaum in her book Gulag. Quote, Years of heavy labor and hunger had undermined their virility, and now, before an intimate meeting with an almost strange woman, they felt, beside nervous exhaustion, helpless anger and despair. Several times they did hear men boasting of their prowess after a visit, but usually these matters were a cause for shame and respected and silenced by all prisoners. Not only did the prisoners suffer when sent to the gulag, their spouses often were unable to find jobs. They were isolated from friends and family, many scared that associating them with the spouse would could land them in Siberia as well. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about a conversation between prisoner Gerasmovich and his wife Nadia, based on a similar one that he had with his wife Natasha, when he was imprisoned. This comes from Solzhenitsyn's work, The First Circle. Quote, Nadia lowered her eyes. I wanted to say, only you won't take it to heart, will you? You once said that we ought to get divorced. She said it very quietly. Yes, there was a time when he had insisted on this, but now he was startled. Only at this moment did he notice that her wedding ring, which she had always worn, was not on her finger. Yes, of course, he agreed, with every appearance of alarm. Then you won't be against it if I have to do it. 
With a great effort, she looked at him. Her eyes were very wide. The fine pinpoints of her great pupils were alight with a plea for forgiveness and understanding. It would be pseudo, she added, breathing the word rather than speaking it. These get-togethers were held in a place known as the House of Meetings. Returning to our friend Hurling, he writes, quote, I came to the realization that if hope can often be the only meaning left in life, then its realization may sometimes be an unbearable torment. Writing these words is hard for me, as it brings a sort of reality to the suffering these poor souls went through. Still, it cannot be any harder to read and write, as it was for the prisoners to put pen to paper and share with the rest of the world. What I shared with you today was the stories of men who went through the gulag system. Next time, I will share stories of women and children who went through many of the same situations, often with very different points of view. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm working through the final details of the next chapter in the life of my podcast, as we will be moving much of the new content over to Patreon, beginning on April 30th, 2020, the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the Russian Rulers podcast. Some of the planned episodes on Patreon will include Russia Before the Russians, a two-part series on the gods of old Russia, which will cover the origins and details of Slavic paganism, and an episode about the famous Russian historians who have taught us over the centuries about the incredible history of this incredible land and people. I'll be sharing more information about it in the coming weeks, both here and on Facebook. While I'm writing this script and reading it, is the time of the great COVID-19 pandemic gripping our world. To all of my listeners, please keep safe and healthy, as you all have become somewhat of an extended family to me. So, until next time, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.